Welcome everyone to the Developmentor Podcast, your source for interviews and content on careers in technology. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll, and we have three goals here at Developmentor. We want to show all the different roles in tech and the people who fill them. We want to highlight the different paths people have taken in their careers to show that it's okay to not directly use that degree you paid 150 k for. And most importantly, we want to help you find your path. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com. Today's guest is yet another alumni from my alma mater, Amherst College, the Fair College on the Hill. From that fine establishment of higher learning, they launched their career writing about Major League Baseball for the Internet's first fantasy baseball league. Over the years, our guest has held a variety of roles as a billing manager, project coordinator, telecom analyst, before settling into and growing in their role as a technology research analyst, where he's been at the forefront of trends like Moneyball, Bring Your Own Device, and the data economy. These days, our guest is the CEO and principal analyst of Amalgam Insights, an analyst firm based in Silicon Valley. Please welcome to the show, Hiwan Park. Hiwan, great to have you here. Hi, Grant. Uh, pleasure to be here. I think, you know, as I said, you're like the fourth or fifth uh, fellow alumni of mine to be on the show. So I really like bringing it back home to where we all got started. You know, I guess it goes to show that sometimes the most important thing you gain in college is a network of, of friends and acquaintances. So perhaps we can start off here all these years later with just filling in our listeners on some of the highlights of your career that I touched on, perhaps add a little more color to, to that intro. Sure. So uh, you know, my career is definitely demonstration that tech is not just a straight line uh, left to right path. I actually uh, graduated from college with a degree in women's and gender studies uh, after you know, starting as a pre-med chemistry major, thinking that I was just going to you know, go through school, take the MCATs, uh, go straight to Johns Hopkins and become a neurosurgeon or something. And, you know, after after my sophomore year, I realized that really wasn't the path for me. And, and I ended up uh, graduating from college with this women's studies major, as well as a lot of musical experience. So I was in an acapella group, the DQ, I was in concert choir, played in the orchestra. So, you know, obviously women's studies and music degree. Uh, so when I got out of college, it was at the end of the dot-com era. And I started working at one of these uh, venture capital-backed phone companies, uh, literally doing customer service, you know, taking calls, asking about your caller ID and uh, what's wrong with your phone and uh, placing basic orders with the phone companies that we had partnerships with. And in learning about those order forms and technologies, I started understanding each field represented a piece of data and that each piece of that data went into some sort of backend system. And I started putting the pieces together. Before you know it, I I know about telecom procurement systems and ordering systems. And then I started moving into a training role and then into a, a technology management role. So that's what I ended up doing for about uh, my first five years out of college. Uh, a variety of roles associated with customer relationship management, software, as well as database management. As I got deeper into data, I obviously had to learn how to actually manage a database. And this just kind of happened organically that as I learned more and more about the data, my managers and executives in our company just expected me to understand how to work with a database. So uh, rather than tell them that I couldn't, I decided to put a book and learn to actually do it. 
So, you know, no, nothing like the uh, fear of losing your job to uh, help people learn technology. Sometimes it's the best motivation for sure. I mean, the good thing is that, you know, there's a lot of texts out there, you know, even 15, 20 years ago, you could pick up a text and nowadays you've got a lot of uh, different online options out there. So, you know, I moved from the, after doing these uh, VC backed companies for a few years, the 60 to 80 hour week started burning me out and I shifted over to the enterprise IT side for a few years, uh, working at Teradyne and Bose. So when I first moved to Teradyne, I had this data-based background uh, working in telephone companies. And one of the first things they asked me is, can you work with cell phones? Do you know how to manage uh, cell phones and pagers and the devices? Of course, I had worked with data. Anybody who's a database administrator or has worked uh, deeply in data knows that you're not actually touching hardware. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, that said, you know, it was just another skill to learn. So I was asked to do it. You know, I, I told them to give me a little time to figure out how these, at the time, Blackberries and Nokia devices and, and then uh, moving up to the iPhone when it first came out, you know, how they worked. And, you know, I found, you know, it was another skill that I had to pick up to be able to do my job as, as well as I could. So I ended up uh, doing a lot of direct telecom network and mobility IT for about that five-year period. And, and then around uh, 2008, I realized I had gotten all these experiences working both on the VC, uh, you know, the startup side, as well as the enterprise IT side. And I wanted to start sharing them with everybody else. And I tried to figure out what the best way to do that was. And back in 2000, a little harder to become an Instagram influencer or start up a YouTube channel that would get a lot of traffic. Back then, the you know, best way to share experiences was either to become some sort of a technology evangelist for a large technology company or to become an industry analyst. And, and I chose the latter because I wanted to be able to take a bird's eye view of all the technologies that were relevant out there and to try to pick and choose best practices from all the end users and all the vendors that I spoke to rather than having to take a particular perspective. Uh, there's, that's not the right way or the wrong way to do it. It's just the way that I preferred. And then over the past decade, I've been an industry analyst uh, looking at trends across telecom, mobility, as well as analytics and data, what we call big data, and now looking at machine learning. Uh, about two years ago, I started my own firm, Amalgam Insights, which I continue to run to this day. Yeah, that's fantastic, Juan. I mean, I think there's so many things to unpack for our listeners in there because I think, you know, this this leap that you took even as an undergrad that says, you know what, this path I thought I was on is not actually the path I want to be on. I, I imagine, you know, I mean, you know, you gave the, you kind of, went through it quickly, but I imagine that was probably a pretty hard decision, right? In, in terms of, you know, like you're 18, 19, 20 years old, somewhere in there, I'm assuming, and you're off away from home and maybe there's expectations from parents, et cetera. You're, you're going to a college that, well, let's face it, it ain't cheap, right? And so you, you take this different path. I mean, perhaps drill in a little bit more there, if you don't mind. There was a lot of soul searching there, to be quite honest. Uh, you know, even coming out of high school, I had taken a lot of AP courses with the goal of being on the fast track to be pre-med. 
I had finished up all my pre-med requirements by the end of my sophomore year. I, I took the MCAT. So like I, I was pretty much ready to apply to medical school. Wow. <laughs> wow. By the end of sophomore year. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I had taken biochem, organic chemistry, my two semesters of physics, my calculus, you know, all, all that yeah. stuff. So, you know, I, I had been pretty serious about this and, uh, but I started realizing um, as, as I thought about the amount of work ahead of me that I didn't love the idea of doing medicine. Hmm. And over that, you know, especially that sophomore year, I realized, well, if I don't love it now, you know, I've got another two years before I graduate college, then I've got another four years of medical school, and then I've got who knows how many years of training uh, to get to yeah. uh, the final uh, practice that I, I want to be doing, you know, and do I love this enough to do it for another 10 years? And I realized I really didn't. And, you know, that was uh, really shocking to me, actually, because then I didn't have a plan B. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, well, but you figured something out, right? That's right. So, you know, I had to figure out while living life, which is just how, you know, that's how life works. But yeah. I would say it was a tough experience to go through. But you know, looking back, I'm, I'm glad I didn't go through and just try to go through medical school just because I had the prereqs and was doing the right thing. Because I'm, I'm sure that something would have happened. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, get, you know, getting through. You know, in many ways, what you're describing is like, it's a sunk cost argument, right? Of like, you know what, like, sometimes it's, it's better just to cut bait and, and move on. You've got this sunk cost. And that's just, the lesson learned. And, you know, and it sounds like it's worked out for you because you've then built a career around following and, you know, things that interest you. I'm wondering though, just real quick, because, you know, I think you're probably my first guest who has a degree in, in women and gender studies. And I think it's a perfect example, like you said, of what, what I'm trying to show here, uh, you know, reflecting back here now, how actually has that degree played out for you in, in your career in tech? I mean, what, what are maybe some of the things that you took away from it that you didn't really realize at the time? Yeah, it, it ended up being much more strategically valuable than I thought it was going to be. I originally took on the degree because I was trying to figure out what can I do at this you know, very expensive college that I can't do otherwise in the real world. And I started looking at things like math. I've always been decent at math. So I you know, I know how to teach myself that. I, I took a bunch of science courses already. So I had a pretty decent idea of how to pick up a journal or you know read an article or at least figure out how to learn the next topic that I would want to know. And although English and history are great, I, I figured I have an idea of at least where to start with topics like that. Whereas women's and gender studies, I started looking at that topic and I realized, wow, I, I would have no idea how to start learning this without being in a more structured academic setting. And I'm surrounded by some of the world's leading experts. And, you know, that's kind of a general thing about college that I think students don't really realize at the time, that when you're 18, 19 years old, these teachers you have are often the world's leading experts in their particular fields. Just because they're teaching you, you know, intro to psych or uh, intro to computer science doesn't mean that they don't have a lot of higher knowledge. Um, <laughs> right. So making this decision, call it, you know, middle of sophomore year rather than the first day of freshman year, made a big difference in kind of 
understanding what kind of resources were available. So I ended up doing this women's and gender studies degree with a lot of focus on both the spectrums of gender and sex, which is becoming you know, more popularly understood with things like uh, being a transsexual or, or non-binary. That was actually a deep part of what I was studying academically. And at the time, I thought this was interesting for my understanding of humanity as a whole. But uh, you know, a year or two into my tech career, I, I, I didn't really understand the alignment. As I progressed, though, and became uh, both more of a manager and had to develop technology portfolios uh, to some degree that aligned to consumer usage and employee across thousands of employees, uh, I did start feeling that degree was more helpful because I didn't take non-white uh, and Asian male perspectives for granted. You know, it's just inherent, maybe not inherent, but at least uh, academically learned perspective that I was able to bring in to not discount, say, women's experiences, Hispanic experiences, Black experiences, you know, low-income experiences when we're talking about any project, whether it be as basic as what kind of phone are you going to get as a new employee or what assumptions are we making as we you know, bring this new product to market. Yeah, and, and all that more important these days in tech as, as I think techs, you know, rightfully having some reckoning around some of these issues and, and frankly, how poorly tech has handled, you know, some of these issues in the past. So, I mean, I think if I'm hearing you correctly, this this degree that you took purely out of intellectual curiosity, if I'm reading in, is like you, you felt like, hey, I could go pursue this because I'm here, but not with necessarily some expectation of career or job, has actually then served you so well throughout all of your career. Am I inferring that right? Yeah. And, and definitely as I got older, you know, I'll be honest, the first call it two or three years out of college, I had to focus on building up my technical chops because I didn't have any. And I was you know, very focused on getting that right. But once I went beyond being, call it a low-level individual contributor and started moving up in my career, it was extremely valuable. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So let's actually shift gears and talk a little bit about the technical chops because what you're also describing here is you went and figured it out yourself, right? Like basically self-taught technical. Obviously, you're in an environment where you you were given some capacity to learn and explore. But, you know, how did you approach, quote unquote, getting technical? So one of the things I was very fortunate on having early in my career was kind of an open path. I had a number of managers who allowed me to take on new skills and take on new challenges and gave me, call it, weeks to learn a skill because they realized that it would be perhaps either more productive or cheaper to have me do that rather than try to find a new person from scratch. But that said, I you know the hard part is then you have to figure out how do I actually learn the skill? How do I get proficient in a skill that I you know, haven't been taught uh, in a formal setting? You know, in, in retrospect, I, I wish I'd taken at least one or two computer science courses <laughs> in uh, college. It would have made it, uh, some of this much easier. But you know, honestly, I, I don't have a, a better strategy than you know, I 
than saying that when when I started seeing the technologies that I was going to work with, I tried to sign up for individual classes. You know, they might be not even like formal semester long classes. You know, they might be a one or two day class uh, on a weekend. I, I bought the book. I would uh, spend nights every night going through at least a few pages of the book and banging my head against it to figure out, <laughs> you know, how to get at least two pages ahead. And, you know, it's funny, uh, when you're in college, sometimes you just uh, learn to the test. You just kind of figure out, here's the bold face method of here's what I can learn versus here's what I can kind of ignore. Whereas in the real world, you don't get to ignore anything because you use all of the functionality. I felt it was much more useful to make sure I learned at least one new concept or function or capability every night, even if it was one function, one command, uh, whatever it was, and just incrementally make that process. And, you know, it felt, you know, at times really frustrating, you know, I'd spend several hours at night, you know, literally trying to understand one word. <laughs> wow, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that part is just, uh, that's just how it works. It's more important to make that progress and to make sure you really learn something right the first time rather than try to just feel like, oh, I've got to go through two chapters today for, for the sake of reading through two chapters. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I love it because, you know, one of the things I've always taken pride in myself as well is this, like, let's go figure it out. And, mm -hmm. and that is exactly what you're describing here is I'm going to go figure this out and I'm going to do it on, on my terms and, and I'm going to get there. I want to then kind of flash forward a little bit because, you know, one of the themes I often see across people's career trajectories are these inflection points. You know, you, you talked about the one in college, um, you know, and then you're off to like these BC land, you're doing customer service. I imagine, reflect for a moment, if you will, on how those years shaped this, because I, I would imagine you, now you've got kind of two pillars here, right? You've got this understanding of kind of all different types of people. And then now you're actually bringing it into the real world by doing customer service, by, you know, really focusing in on how do we deliver value outwards, right? Right. And I feel like the, the five years I spent with venture capital-backed companies early in my career was really useful because those companies were really focused on scale. They had you know, tens of millions of dollars that were devoted to growing the company and trying to make a mark on the market. We had timeframes that were mostly weeks. We didn't have years to get something done, both because we needed to get market traction and we needed to work on the next round of funding. And it was a very open environment where you know, we had a small team of people. It might be, depending on where we were as a company, 30 people, 100 people, but it wasn't thousands and thousands of people. So there was an open capability. Uh, there, there's an open opportunity to be able to really figure out what problems existed and then to take action in working on that. But I, I think there's also a limit to that too, which is why after I left those uh, VC-backed companies, it was nice to have a few years in enterprise IT as well and understand the structure. I, I think both mm. aspects that are important, uh, both uh, understanding how to you know, just go in and do it as well as then learning a bit about corporate politics and how 
larger companies focus efforts to be able to do these really big billion dollar things. Yeah. And in many ways, you're, you get to see both ends of it, right? Like here, the start state and the, you know, the supposed goal, <laughs> or at least the, the, a, a particular end state for what a successful startup eventually looks like. I, I'm curious then, you know, like you mentioned, you, you did a little bit of reflection on, okay, where, where can I go into this role where I can write and think across a a lot of different things. So this resulted in this transition to being a research analyst. I'm curious if like if you can drill in on that a little bit more because I'm sure, you know, again, like you're you're at this junction point in, in your life where you're gonna say, all right, I'm gonna go do something different. What was your thought process through that? How did you actually arrive at, you know, research analyst and how did you get that first job as somebody who didn't have that background per se? Yeah. You're about 10 years out of college, I, I realized that the role that I, roles that I had as a, that were, call it an internal and a back office, although they, they paid well and they were jobs that I was comfortable in doing, I felt that they were going to be career dead ends ultimately. And mm. although I, I do get off the beaten path, I, I've also uh, typically been fairly ambitious. You know, I've always wanted to be the guy on, on the honor roll. I, you know, getting the promotion every couple of years. And I realized there's only so much you can do there without uh, taking a more hands-on role in management and being more public facing. And I was trying to figure out what was the best way to do that from my current roles, my last call it real job before becoming an industry analyst. I was doing project management, some software testing, as well as uh, working with IT expenses, about uh, $6 million worth of our telecom network and mobile spend. And I was trying to figure out, well, I've learned so much about telecom, mobility, data, IT finance, and I'd like to share these with other people. And so Mm. I started doing some research and found there, there are these companies called Gartner and Forrester and IDC, and I'd read their reports every once in a while as as an end user, but I started digging much more deeply into that world and realizing there's this uh, career path that goes along that role as well as studying how end users really understand technology, as well as sharing your own experiences and then using those to write these reports. And I thought, oh, that that's a great next step. So I started applying. You know, and I frankly started at the bottom. I started as a, a research editor at a company called the Aberdeen Group back then, focusing specifically on this area called uh, telecom expense management, which is literally how companies uh, manage their telecom phone expenses. So it was a very niche area. So I basically started back at the beginning in my early 30s. And I, I did that on purpose because I wanted to learn the job from the bottom up. It's it's always how I've done things. You know, if I'm going to start in, if I'm going to work in customer service, I'm going to start by uh, picking up the phone. You know, if I'm going to work in IT, I'm going to start at the help desk. I'm, I'm not going to start just by saying I'm I'm the absolute boss of everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and not necessarily the case that somebody would even get to, you know, allow you to be the boss of everything when you're, when you're just getting started. I, I love that though, because I mean, I think, you know, especially in this day and age, I think sometimes people just forget you got to roll up your sleeves and do the work, right? Yep. 
And, and no matter what degrees you have, no matter how much money you're making, et cetera, if you're going to start, like, you got to go do the work. Now, maybe there's some shortcuts out there that I'm not aware of. I, I want to drill in on this because actually just, uh, I think, two or so, maybe three episodes ago on, we just had Mike Gualtieri from Forrester Research, one of the, the bigger firms that, that you mentioned yeah. here, who's also Great a tech analyst. Yeah. Yeah. Who's also a tech industry analyst. And, and, you know, of course we'll, we'll be sure to link it, link up here, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about your approach to the role, especially as someone who has worked for the big analyst firm, I think, Aber or at least Aberdeen's, I think pretty large, if I, if I recall, you know, so you've been at the big analyst firm, you've kind of worked your way up and then you've gone off and created your own firm in this space. So how do you compare and contrast uh, and how do you think about the role as research analyst, especially now at your own firm? Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of what we do as uh, industry analysts is simply dig into markets to a greater extent than end users get to do themselves and managers. You know, when you're purchasing technology, it, you haven't spent years looking at that market typically. You, you typically have to make a, a decision uh, within a few months going from start to finish. That's basically our role, uh, keeping track of the markets so uh, we can provide uh, guidance. So whether that be in the you know, telecom or mobility or databases or analytics or business intelligence, it's mostly about going in, uh, working with uh, end users to be able to help them differentiate in the capabilities that uh, really matter, as well as providing guidance on what are the 2019 up-to-date characteristics of these technologies or the specific brands technologies because it, it can be very easy to think about an outdated perspective of a say a company like Oracle or SAP Informatica you know companies that have been around a long time it can be easy to think about their some version from five years ago and say oh that you know that's where they are right now uh, yeah. So being able to um, provide that perspective from a third-party perspective is really my biggest tactical goal. And then from speaking with both end users and vendors that talk about what they're trying to do from a technology perspective, gleaning trends, uh, goals that seem to be shared between both technology providers and users or uh, things that everybody wants to be able to do and being able to make uh, projections based on that kind of research, which can be both kind of qualitative interviews as well as more quantitative survey type work. So the day-to-day the -day is, uh, imagine, or at least I understand it, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of meetings where you're meeting with vendors, you're meeting with clients. In here, though, I'm sure you have to spend quite a bit of time just with the tech itself, right? Like you you have to have an understanding of how, how these things work. And, you know, one of the things Mike and I talked about, and I would be curious to hear your take on it, is like being an analyst like this, this is not a straight out of college job. This is like a job where you go get these experiences across a lot of different things, and it's like the culmination of them. Is that a fair characterization? It is. Uh, to, to get up to, call it, research director role or you know the, the primary or principal analyst role yes you have to have a fair amount of experience in evaluating these technologies from 
across technological aspects, uh, the practical aspects of uh, project implementation, financial ROI, and the business case associated with the technology. Yeah, the, and, and all that takes some time to build up. Um, you know, during my uh, time in my early 30s, I actually went back to get an MBA. And I found that helpful mm. in, in uh, providing me with some of the additional, call it finance and accounting background that I hadn't uh, gained in my working career, as well as uh, some networking and some interesting classes on pricing and things like that. Oh, cool. Yeah, but you know, all that comes together in the analyst role because there's not only the evaluation, but then that presentation that you have to conduct as well. Part of being a market-facing analyst is also doing the webinars, the speaking on stage, the executive uh, presentations that uh, you don't necessarily think about as an individual technology contributor. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I'm glad you brought that up. And that's probably a, a good segue because, uh, you know, this, the most recent inflection point, as you as you mentioned earlier in your, your highlights, was, hey, I went off and started my own company. You know, what, in, what inspired that? Well, I've been, uh, call it, you know, every couple of years as an analyst, I've increased my roles and responsibility. So when I started as an analyst, uh, I was really doing a lot of report writing and data crunching, taking survey data and cutting it every which way to figure out uh, specific trends and cross sections, things like that. And then I moved into a market-facing role. And then I started managing multiple practices. And over time, I, I realized that I, I wanted more control of the company, not just the aspects of research that I was doing, but also making sure that our products were well aligned to the market and making sure that we were in partnership with other uh, media and analyst firms that were accretive to what we were doing and uh, having uh, more of a say on the customer service side, having more of a say on the sales side, on how things are presented, um, having that control that uh, you can't have if you're only running the research side. Mm -hmm. So all that led to me wanting to uh, run my own firm rather than work at another firm where I would have limited control over some of those aspects that I wanted to be able to have uh, some say in. It's not to say that I love doing sales or <laughs> love, love doing marketing. Uh, you know, my love is always going to be looking at aspects of how technology is used, both from a technical and cultural perspective. But I do find that kind of oversight is useful for call it eliminating bad practices or making sure that the company's culture and perspective and priorities are are made clear from the get-go yeah that makes makes a lot of sense and you know one of the things i love whenever i have leaders on the show is you know really drill in on what do you look for when you're hiring now building a team you know like you're now in this position where people like our listeners are saying, Hey, I want that job at, at Amalgam. What are you looking for? What's your advice for them? Yeah, I'm looking most, um, perhaps this is my bias, but I like people who are 
problem solvers. Not like when I interview people for potential positions, I'm not necessarily looking for someone who has a, a pat answer, but someone who's uh, willing to explore a scenario more deeply and think of the various challenges that may exist and then trying to think of uh, how the problem is solved. And I, and I like practical questions as well. So my question would, would be along the lines of something like, you know, it might be a hypothetical, call, call it something crazy like, uh, you know, Microsoft just buys Oracle. You know, what mm. does that mean? Mm. <laughs> not to say that would happen or not to say that's going to happen. And there's no right answer, but it's more like thinking about, you know, what are the pieces that are involved in uh, something crazy like that happening? I, I'm not a big fan of uh, questions like you have an airplane and, you know, how much does it weigh? <laughs> All you have are 12 marbles. Um, like, I don't find that level of abstraction helpful. I, I, I like thinking about the practical types of problems that we are actually going to be dealing with or some sort of uh, some version of that <laughs> in, yeah. in interviews that I do. Or, you know, you have the survey data, something looks off. You know, how are you going to fix it if it's more of an entry-level position? Those are the types of things I look for. And, and then people who are really, who are really thoughtful about how they would go about solving those problems. So those are the people I, I like working with um, because I tend to find they have interesting solutions that are not standard. Right. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, a lot of, a lot of good advice there. And of course the, the marble answer is you asked the, the interviewer right back because, you know, they didn't really specify the size of the airplane. So (laughs) there's a lot of assumptions and it's actually, you know, it's, it's a, it's an awful question for so many reasons. (laughs) You know, Juan, I think, uh, you know, I love to say, you know, jobs and careers aren't all sunshines and and rainbows. What's, you know, what's the best part of the gig and what's the most challenging part for you? You know, I think the best part is that uh, being able to, constantly be able to check with the pulse of tech. So I I mentioned a lot of large companies, but I really love working with smaller companies. uh, Those that are, call it, you know, just starting, have their first 30 to 50 employees, uh, maybe series A or series B funding. You know, those are a lot of fun to work with because they are trying to make their mark and do something different in a technology market. That's a lot of fun uh, working with companies that are call it mid market at 500 to 1,000 employees, and just starting to have their first formal suite of uh, software and technologies that they're really centralizing on. You know, that's a lot of fun as well. Being able to do that kind of work on a regular basis is enjoyable, and, and I also really uh, have uh, embraced being able to talk more about things like uh, diversity and inclusion and STEM education, because now I have this platform from having been an analyst for a decade. Those are the best parts. Um, You know, the hardest parts are always about figuring out how to challenge what is wrong with tech. So when something bias happens, when when there's something that goes against human rights, because uh, some technologists decided to put something out there that ends up being racist or sexist or ends up profiling people who are innocent. How do you deal with that? And how do you advocate against that? And, uh, you know, how do you work with these companies that 
often have large PR organizations that are trying to maintain their status quo. <laughs> yeah. uh, I find that, that kind of, that, that's still ch a challenge that I haven't quite mastered, but it's probably the deepest concern I have in, in the job that I have. Right. Well, and, and if you can master that one, then you, you just solved a whole lot of the world's problems, right? So right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think our listeners will give you a little bit of a pass there. I mean, I think the fact that you're, you're bringing it up and addressing it, I think really hits at, uh, you know, how important it is to have these conversations, right? I mean, I think, uh, you know, like at my current place, we, we talk about this all the time, you know, as, as a large nonprofit, probably the largest tech nonprofit, you know, this is front and center. And a lot of what we talk about is, is making sure that all people have an opportunity to, to participate. Right. Yeah. You know, Wikipedia is the world's <laughs> world's information source uh, right now. Uh, we, we all depend on it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, and, you know, I'll, I'll say send in those, 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 those donations, but, um, you know, sh shifting gears a little bit, cause you know, like you said, this part of this role also is, Hey, what's next, right? I mean, analysts are constantly bombarded with what's next. You put out your 2020 predictions, you know, we're at the end of the year when we're recording this, but it probably won't hit till, you know, February or so, you know, and many of our listeners are actually focused on what's next for them. That's part of the premise of the, the show. And, and your job is to think about that. So let me ask the obvious question, given the, the lead in here, what's next? What's next? What's next in tech? You know, what do you, what do you kind of see as the, the things people should be thinking about for 2020? Yeah, I, I think there's a whole lot of really interesting things happening in machine learning to make it much more consumable as well as deployable and actually supportable on an ongoing basis. I feel like prior to this year, you, you could still do machine learning and some data science, but it was always this one-time project, and then you had to rebuild everything from scratch every time you wanted to do something else. So I'm really excited to see companies starting to operationalize machine learning and data science for real and taking advantage of their actual uh, data environment, everything they've built out over the past 20 years for prior business intelligence and analytics uh, deployments and actually being able to take advantage of their data environments to be able to uh, conduct machine learning on uh, a larger scale. That, that's what I'm looking at at a high level. And of course, that means a whole lot of things, everything from data management and orchestration all the way on the back end and then on the front end, seeing how that gets turned into applications and how those uh, workloads are containerized. But the, I think the core of it is really around uh, operationalizing machine learning. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's everywhere, right? And it, it actually nicely ties back into some of the other things you talked around of diversity and inclusion too, because, you know, getting this stuff in production to, to work for real users in the real world, you know, requires a much bigger view of the world than what's just happening in Silicon Valley, so. Yeah, and I think even when we talk about ethical AI and ethical machine learning, we, we focus just on, the bias within the actual modeling process. I think we need to put more work into both considering the ethics of the project even being considered in the first place prior to 
the initial development. Yeah. And then on the deployment side, once it's actually out there, how's this being used? How's it being maintained? Who has access to it? You know, there, there needs to be more work done in treating AI as a more mature and IT-like uh, technology rather than just this magic button that gives you this answer <laughs> that makes <millions> of dollars. <laughs> For sure. You know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. right? Yeah. Juan, this, this has been really great having you on. I mean, there was so many interesting inflection points. And I'm, I'm wondering now, you know, kind of tie things back. If you were advising somebody on a similar path, or perhaps, you know, you could get a hold of 20 year old you and say, Hey, you know, here's some piece of advice that I've actually found really helpful for me. I'm, I'm wondering if you could, you know, reflect a little bit on that. Yeah. If I were speaking to younger me, I think there would be a couple things I did right, a couple things I did wrong. You know, things I feel like I did right were in uh, having confidence in knowing when I was going in the wrong direction and to go towards the right direction. I don't regret not becoming a doctor because it would have been the wrong direction for me. However, I do think my biggest mistakes in my career have been in not speaking up, especially earlier in my career when I thought something was going in the wrong direction. Hmm. I think if anything, I should have uh, spoken out more. And I think I would remind 20-year-old self to speak out more when things are not working out correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and there's so much that goes into that because obviously you're, you know, you're trying to make your way in the world and, and speaking out means taking a pretty big risk. It is. So it, it's... Big risk. And you have to do it correctly. Um, you can't yeah. just discriminately. You have to do it within your company or organizational culture, you have to know how that works. So I guess along with speaking up, you know, the other part is understanding how that organization actually works, which is something I feel like I didn't really start learning until my 30s, you know, but it would have been helpful to at least start learning that more in my 20s. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, there's I often coach people, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way around these things. You can have hard conversations. It doesn't it doesn't mean you shouldn't have hard conversations. Of course, sometimes speaking up does mean you you know you truly do need to to break glass, right? But oftentimes, at least in the corporate world, it it means you need to figure out the way to lead people there without it you know beating them over the head on it, right? Right, managing upwards. Um. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Well, hey, Helen, this has been a really awesome having you on here. And I'm wondering if maybe we can just wrap up and point our listeners at where can they best follow you? Where can they get in touch with you? Where can they learn perhaps more about what Amalgam Insights is doing, social media, et cetera, LinkedIn? How do people get a hold of you? Sure. So we have a website, amalgaminsights.com, where we post our blogs and research. And we're on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn as well. So both uh, Amalgam Insights as well as my accounts, which are just my first name, last name. <laughs> awesome. We'll be sure, of course, to, to link those up in our show notes. And I, and I, I want to thank you again so much for, for joining me today. A lot of really good insights in how people might you know, take different paths and how they might recognize some of these inflection points that are happening in their own life and, and then choose a, a different path. So thanks again for, for joining me here today. Sure. It's a pleasure. 
And for, of course, our listeners, thank you as well for taking the time to listen. We know you have a busy day and a busy life, so we very much appreciate you tuning in. As I say every show, if you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, you name it. We are on all of the podcast apps that I am aware of. If we're not, let us know and we can put it up there as well. You, of course, can also visit us at developmentor.com to hear older episodes as well as find other content on careers in technology. Most importantly, if you like the show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. If you have feedback for us on this episode or any episode, or you'd like to be a guest, drop us an email at podcast at developmentor.com. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.